Thanks for tuning in to our weekly message. Be sure to visit our website, weareheartland.us, to find out more about the ministry and all of our upcoming events. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, yes, it is great to see you today as we kick off a brand new teaching series titled Big Deal Meals. What a fun title for a teaching series, am I right? Doesn't Big Deal Meals sound like a fun teaching series that we're going to be in for the next few weeks? Of course, as Americans, we know a thing or two about eating some big deal meals, right? Uh, And of course, in just a few weeks, we'll eat the biggest big deal meal of them all when we sit down for Thanksgiving dinner. Most years on Thanksgiving, you can find my family and myself back home in Ohio, where I'm from originally with my siblings and all of their families, 31 people. 16 of which are under the age of 16, packed into my parents' home around their dining room table, spilling over into the living room and the kitchen, and sometimes my little brother will stick him in the bathroom. But um, it is a big deal meal if there ever was one. And of course, you guys know what this is like. So many of us make a big deal out of Thanksgiving. Did you know that on Thanksgiving, Americans eat over 46 million turkeys That's 1.6 billion pounds of turkey eaten on one single day in the United States of America. And to help wash it down, we eat over 80 million pounds of cranberry sauce. The average Thanksgiving dinner takes over seven hours to prepare, and yet the average Thanksgiving dinner in the United States is eaten in less than 16 minutes. Makes you wonder, why do we spend all this time preparing a seven-hour meal only to eat it in less than 16 minutes? Because it is a big deal meal, and that's just what we do. But Thanksgiving is not the only big deal meal that we eat during the year, and of course, big deal meals do not have to be a national holiday. Some of the most significant moments in our lives happen over a meal. Meals have a way of bringing us together. Meals have a way of helping us find common ground, helping us open up. Sometimes if you sit down with somebody without a meal to have a serious conversation and you just sit there looking at each other, just diving into the subject matter, that can feel kind of awkward. But that same conversation can be made easier, less awkward, by sitting down at a dinner table and breaking bread and talking and laughing and sharing stories and kind of getting into it. As someone who enjoys reading, or reading history, one of the things that I find interesting is that this belief or this idea that, that big deal meals or that meals make conversations easier or uh, it's in, some of the most significant moments in our lives happen over meals, that is not unique to us. That's not unique to our culture. As we read throughout history, we see that some of the most significant moments in history took place over a meal, and that was also true with Jesus' ministry. As we read through the gospel accounts that document Jesus' ministry, we frequently see him sitting down to a meal with either a person or a group of people. Jesus was so well known for loving to eat meals with people that we're told by two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, that Jesus got the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard. You have to eat a lot of meals for people to start accusing you of being a glutton and a drunkard. Clearly, Jesus liked to eat. And Luke, more than the other three gospel writers, does a brilliant job of highlighting these meals. 
Over the course of his gospel account, Luke, I believe very intentionally, records for us 10 times that Jesus broke bread either with a person or a, or a group of people. Kind of a cool insight into the book of Luke, that Luke gives us 10 times that Jesus ate a meal with people. Over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to look at five of those 10 big deal meals in the book of Luke. We'll culminate this series on the weekend of Thanksgiving with the last meal that Jesus ever ate here on earth. Not only are we going to look at these five meals together, though, over the course of the month of November, but we're also issuing a challenge to you, and the challenge is to join me and our team in reading through the entire Gospel of Luke over the course of this next month. I believe deeply that God speaks into our lives in powerful ways when we take the time to sit down and to get into his word and to let him speak into our lives through it during the week. And so to help, help guide our time in the book of Luke together, our team created our very own Luke study guide. For those of you who are in the room with me this evening, you should have been offered one of these when you walked in. If you didn't get one yet, be sure to grab one on your way out. For those of you who are joining us via Heartland Online or Heartland On Demand, you can get one of these study guides a couple of ways. The first way would be to stop by the church during the week, during our normal office hours. The other way that you could get one of these study guides is to simply go to the series overview page on our website, download the PDF, and then print it out either at home or at work on your employer's dime like many of us would do, right? Not only does this provide a, an opportunity for you to take notes during the week on the, on the times that we gather to look at these five big deal meals, but there's also a, a question to tee up what you read every week in that, or I'm sorry, every day in that chapter. And so the way that we've broken it down is that starting on Monday of this next week, we want to invite you not to read the whole book of Luke at once. You could do that. It should take you about two, two and a half hours to read the book of Luke in one sitting. But instead, we're saying just read one chapter a day, Monday through Saturday, take Sunday off as kind of a Sabbath, right? You could spend that time you know, digging into one of the five meals that we're going to be looking at, one of the ten of Luke's. But then you'll jump back in as well. And so if you read one chapter a day, it'll take you about 10 minutes. Then you sit down with the study guide and you think about the question that has been kind of teed up for you. And then there's some space for you to, to write some notes and to, to, to kind of catch your thoughts. If you do this, at the end of the month, not only will you have, not only will you have you know, looked at five of the 10 big deal meals in Luke, you will have studied you will have internalized, you have, will have provided time for God to speak into your life in significant ways. So I hope that you will grab a reading guide, and I hope that you will join us on this journey. Today, as we get started, before we jump into the first big deal meal that we're going to look at, I want to begin by giving you just a little bit of background on the text that we're going to be studying this month. I want to give you a little background on the book of Luke. Today in our Bibles, we have four what are called gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four documents record the life and ministry of Jesus. They record his interactions with people, they record the things that he taught, they record the, the miracles that he performed, and of course they record at the end of his earthly life, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. 
Two of the gospel writers had firsthand knowledge of this because they were there, Matthew and John. They were disciples of Jesus. The other two gospel writers, Mark and Luke, got their information from other people. Mark primarily got his from the disciple Peter. And so you can think in some ways of of Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel. Luke got a lot of his information from Paul, but then we also believe that he got it from a collection of other people that he interviewed. We know that that Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, he was incredibly smart, incredibly insightful, and incredibly thorough, and because of that, we find that the Gospel of Luke is the most comprehensive of the four Gospels that we have. We believe that Luke wrote his Gospel around the year AD 60, and we believe that he wrote it from the city of Rome where Paul was under house arrest. Luke traveled with the Apostle Paul frequently. We, we know this from Paul's writings and some of the New Testament epistles that he wrote. Well, when Paul was under house arrest, we believe that Luke went and stayed with him to keep him company. And while there, he got to know a man named Theophilus, who was a high-ranking Roman official. Because of his high-ranking position, he would have also been a wealthy gentleman. He would have been incredibly well-connected. Well, what we find from the context clues was that Theophilus had come to place his faith in Jesus through the stories that started to pop up, through the, through the teachings that he was hearing, through people that he met that were followers of Jesus and that had been around Jesus firsthand. But Luke wanted to do a, a, a kind of a, a service for Theophilus in writing a, a thorough account of his own. And we find this in the very opening verses of the book of Luke. In Luke 1, we read, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so what we find is that the Gospel of Luke is not just some willy-nilly thrown together, we're not really sure where it came from or why it was put together in the first place type paper. This was a a well-researched document from a highly educated physician who had investigated these things thoroughly. And we don't know this for certain. We, this is 100% pure speculation on my part. But I personally kind of wonder to myself if the reason that Luke, more than the other gospel writers, recorded Jesus' meals, I, I just kind of wonder if the guy liked to eat. You know? I, I don't know. But I just kind of wonder. Maybe he knew his way around a kitchen. Maybe, maybe Luke was an amateur chef himself. And so he loved whenever he heard about meals that Jesus ate with people. And so he was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to record more of those than anybody else tends to record. Regardless of why he did it, you're probably already familiar with some of Jesus' big deal meals. Maybe you're familiar with the feeding of 5,000 or the wedding feast at Cana or, of course, the last supper in the upper room with the 12 disciples. Today, to get things started, I want us to look at a story that is maybe a little less well-known. I want us to look at a meal that maybe you've never read before, or if you have, maybe you read through it quickly, not pausing long enough to place yourself in the story. It comes partway into Jesus' ministry. It's not near the end when things are coming to a close, but it's also not at the very beginning where his message and teachings were new. It was clearly far enough into his ministry for his message to be clear to at least one woman. 
It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 7, and if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, I'm going to start the story in verse 36, where we read, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, and so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. All right, now I want to stop already to make just a couple of observations. First, Jesus was known and Jesus was criticized for frequently eating with quote-unquote tax collectors and sinners. But he was also more than willing to eat dinner with Pharisees and other religious leaders. Point being that nobody was beyond the scope of Jesus' love. I've said this before, but I'm going to continue to say it as many times as I can. It does not matter who you are or what your life looks like. Christ came for you. God created you because he wanted you to exist. He knows everything about you, and he loves you, and Jesus came for you, and you are invited to do life in a personal relationship with the almighty God himself. It is an incredible thing, and it is true for you no matter what your life looks like today. The second observation we want to pause and talk about for a moment was how Jews in the first century gathered around the dining room table. For us today, when we gather around the dining room table, we sit down on what? Yeah, chairs. This is not a trick question. Some of you looked at me like, I don't know. Yes, chairs. We sit on chairs. In the first century Jewish culture, that was not the case. In fact, we were told in that passage, we were given a clue that Jesus reclined at the table. Well, that was because in the first century, you have to picture a table much closer to the ground. And then a series of pillows and blankets and pads around the table. And then people would literally lie down on those pillows and pads with their head up near the table. Their feet extended away from the table. And they would literally lie down around the table. This picture will give you an idea of what this would have looked like. But this was a very common dining room setup for people in the first century. They would lie on those pads on the floor with their head up by the table, their feet extended away. As you can see, this is very, very different from how we gather around a table today. But remember, meals in the first century were a big deal, especially meals like this would have lasted for hours. It was not like, hey, we're going to sit down and blow through this in the next 16 minutes type of a meal. And so when you have somebody over, when you have a guest, when you have a banquet or a feast, they would lie down and they would get really comfortable. They would spend so much time just telling stories and laughing and, 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 and crying with one another and listening and engaging. And, and it, was, it was like, a you know, especially if a teacher was there, these people would gather around the table with them and they would hang on every word that the rabbi was saying to them. Much like you are hanging on the word when Dugan teaches most weekends, right? So they were reclined at this table of the, this Pharisee, and we read in verse 37, they were reclined around the table when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
two short verses that tell a much, much more detailed story. We're told that this woman was known for having lived a sinful life in that town. We can't know this with 100% certainty, but there is almost universal agreement among scholars today that this is a polite way of saying that the woman worked as a prostitute. When she hears that Jesus was eating at this Pharisee's house, she went in. Today we hear that and we think, why? Like, that's so crazy. She wasn't invited. Nobody invited her to come to this Pharisee's house and to have dinner with them. Why did she go in? Wouldn't somebody have asked her to leave? And the answer is no. Again, you have to understand the culture of the day. In the first century Jewish culture, anytime there was a banquet or a feast or a gathering like this, people were invited to come and to sit quietly around the outside of the table. They were invited to come in because especially if there was a rabbi there, they would be invited to sit quietly and listen so that they could learn from the rabbi. And then also people who came from the lowest statuses of society who couldn't, who couldn't provide much for themselves were invited to come and to take the, the leftovers of the food so that they would have something to eat. And so it would not have been surprising in this context for there to have been a small crowd of people packed into this home, gathered around the dinner guests. What would have been surprising, however, was what this woman started to do. Instead of keeping a few feet of distance between herself and the dinner guests, we're told that she goes directly to Jesus' feet. And as she's listening to him teach, she starts crying. She breaks down in tears. Aren't you curious what might have prompted that? Why'd she start crying? Well, we have to put ourselves in the room that day with Jesus and this woman. We don't know the details of her story. But it is safe to assume that this woman had probably been married at one point in her life as almost all women in this culture were. But it's safe to assume that something happened to her husband. We don't know what, but you can imagine what could have happened. He could have potentially left. He could have passed away. Maybe he had been attacked. Maybe he got sick and died. We don't know why, but this woman found herself single again, no longer able to provide for herself. You can imagine the culture 2,000 years ago, women did not enjoy anything remotely close to the rights and opportunities they have today. So it would have been nearly impossible for her to get a job to provide the livelihood that she needed. Normally, when a woman's husband passed away early in life, she would be provided for by either her oldest son or going back to her father's household or potentially even her deceased brother's brothers. But there were times, as you can imagine, where none of those people would exist. Maybe she had gotten married and her husband passed before she was able to have kids. Maybe her own father had passed away, so it wasn't an option to go there. Maybe her husband didn't have any brothers to take care of her. Maybe he was an only child, or maybe he only had sisters who were married off on their own. We don't know the details, but we know that she had to do something, and she would have had very, very, very few options. So what did she do? She resorts to the oldest profession. 
She sells the one thing that she has that people want that men would pay her for. I do not imagine she would have done this because she wanted to. She did not make this decision out of hope for the future. She did this knowing it would bring tremendous amounts of shame. Shame on her personally that she would never escape. Shame on her deceased husband and everyone in her extended family. This was not women's empowerment. Do not for a second think this was, I'll do what I want with my body and I'll do it with pride. It was not that type of an attitude. This was, I'm literally starving to death and I have no other options. But if I go down this road, I know that I'll be a disgrace and an outcast, and I will never escape the shame people see when they look at me in our small town. But with no other options, this is what she did. We don't know how long she lived this lifestyle, but we do know that any amount of time doing this work brings scars that for many women never heal. If this was her line of work, she no doubt experienced mental and emotional trauma. But even more than that, most likely she experienced verbal and maybe even physical abuse from the men that she, she served. She would have hated her life. She must have grieved the loss of her husband, but even more than that, the loss of the life that she had always dreamed of. She would have grieved the loss of her children and her family and her future she felt constantly dirty, and no amount of washing or scrubbing could make her feel clean. On top of that, she would have been kicked out of the synagogue, no longer welcome at the temple. She would have felt completely cut off from God, and she knew that not only was this life ruined, but that when she died, she had also destroyed her eternity. This was her reality. This was her life, day in and day out. But then she hears about this rabbi. Jesus, who's in their town. And she hears that he's unlike any other rabbi she had ever met before, that he's different in a good way, that he's gentle and gracious, that he extends love and forgiveness where most rabbis extended judgment and condemnation. She hears that he's having dinner at Simon's house and completely broken, knowing that something has to change, she decides to go. She takes the place of a position right at Jesus' feet. She doesn't care that other people are looking at her. They're always looking at her. She doesn't care that they're talking to themselves about her. They're always talking about her everywhere she goes. She simply stands at Jesus' feet and she listens. And what she hears sounds so good. As we read the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus' message, his main teaching point, was almost always the same. Yes, he taught about a wide variety of subjects, but over and over and over again, Jesus came back to this message that the kingdom of God is near, that it's available for every single one of us, that you don't have to earn it, that you cannot get to a place where you deserve it, you do not achieve it, you simply come to Jesus and receive it. You confess your sin, you turn from it, and you receive the forgiveness and the fresh start that he offers. This must have sounded so good to her, maybe even too good at first. But the more that Jesus taught, the more she would have known, I have to have what he is describing. And she just breaks down in tears. And the tears run down her face in streams. And they soak Jesus' feet. She's now so close to him. 
She looks down at them and she realizes that his feet are covered in dust, that there must not have been a servant at the door to wash them when he came in. And so with the water from her tears and her hair as a cloth, she wipes the dirt off his feet. Women in this culture would carry an alabaster jar of perfume around their necks. Think of it almost as a combination of a, of a prized piece of jewelry, but even more than that, as a financial safety net. An alabaster jar of perfume was very valuable, and so it could be sold if worse did come to worse, and it, and it had to be the thing that was given up to provide some, some, some nourishment. And so with the money she saved up from her work, she would have invested that, she would have saved that up to buy this jar of perfume. It was sort of the life savings of this woman. And in this moment, she takes it down off of her neck, she breaks it open, and she pours the perfume on Jesus' feet. She gives everything in response to these words that she's hearing, in response to his invitation for people to come to him, to come to God through him. And as she cries and as she wipes the dirt off his feet, she pours the perfume on his feet and she begins to kiss them, so thankful that these feet brought this message to her today, so thankful for the joy she feels in her heart, maybe for the first time in years, the emotions, the gratitude for Jesus just overflows and she doesn't care that she's creating a scene. The owner of the home, however, does care. And we read that when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Notice that this man does not say this out loud. He says it to himself. But Jesus, being the Son of God and all, knows what this man is thinking and he is not going to sit by and let that thought go unaddressed. Jesus answered him, answered his thought, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus knew that Simon was not seeing this situation correctly, and so he tells him a parable about finances, something that this Pharisee would have understood and been able to relate to. At the end of this parable, Jesus wants to know who is going to be more grateful Who is going to love more as a response to this act of generosity that they have received? And Simon instinctively knows, of course, it's going to be the person who had the bigger debt forgiven. Then Jesus turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, 
But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Customarily, when Jesus arrived at Simon's home for a banquet, he should have either A, washed Jesus' feet himself, or B, had a servant at the door washing Jesus' feet when he came in, or C, at a minimum, had a basin of water for Jesus to wash his own feet. Simon had done none of the above for Jesus. Simon should have welcomed Jesus into his home with a kiss on the cheek. He should have anointed Jesus' head with oil. He did neither of those things. Why not? Because he wasn't grateful for Jesus' presence that day. He didn't love much because he didn't think that he had been forgiven much. He had kept the law. He had done everything right. His sins were few. His sin debt was small. And as a result, his heart was filled with pride, and he loved little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's important to catch this last phrase, this last line Your faith has saved you. Please understand that this woman was not forgiven because of her humility. She was not forgiven because of the tears or the expensive perfume. It was her faith. It was her complete trust in Jesus as the one who could give her a fresh start. It was her faith that saved her. And as a result, she was forgiven. She was set free from the pain of her sin. And she was given the peace that she longed for. This is a beautiful story that illustrates two radically different responses to Jesus' message. That of the Pharisee and that of the woman. And my question for you today is simply, which person are you? Which person are you? Are you the Pharisee? Are you Simon? Do you feel like you have your life together, like you're good to go, like you and God are fine because you're a good person and you really don't need to be forgiven for all that much? Maybe you're more aware of the sin that you see in other people's lives around you than you are your own sin. Or are you the woman, fully aware of your own sin, fully aware of your tendency to turn your back on God, to serve yourself first and foremost, knowing full well that you need a Savior, knowing that you need to be cleaned, which person are you? Well, John, I... Don't really want to be either of them. Could I be Jesus? No. (laughs) You can't be Jesus. You see, we don't really want to be either of the other people in this story. We don't want to be the Pharisee, all superior and arrogant, oblivious to the fact that we're not perfect. But we also don't want to be the woman. We don't want to be that painfully aware of the consequences of our sin. 
I think part of the problem with this question of which person am I in the story is that we don't like to think of ourselves as sinners, right? The word sin is such an interesting word. First of all, it's, it's exclusively a religious word. We don't use this word in any other parts of our culture, right? When you get pulled over for speeding, the police officer doesn't issue you a sin citation, right? You don't ground your teenagers because they sinned against you. I mean, you might want to sometimes, but that's not what you say, right? Nobody checks themselves into rehab because they have a sinning problem. And so the word sin has become purely theological in nature. And we don't want to think of ourselves as sinners because it's such a heavy word. It's such a condemning word. It seems so permanent, like it's part of our identity. I am a sinner. That sounds so harsh. And who would want to admit that? And so instead of calling something sin, we like to use other terms. We like to think of those things as more as a, like a mistake, right? And we don't want to think of ourselves as a sinner. We like to think of ourselves as people who, on occasion maybe, I suppose, make some mistakes. And this is what we do. We've all done this. We've all done this a million times. We've heard Pastor Andy Stanley talk about this around here before as well. He's asked the question, you know, how many times have you seen a politician or some other big public figure come out and have a press conference so that they can confess to a mistake or, or years of a mistake, right? And you listen to the story and they've blown up their reputation, they've blown up their office, they've blown up their family, they've blown up the city, but they just confess to a mistake, that they've made some mistakes and you're sitting there listening to the press conferences, and you're like, wait, 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 wait a second here. That's not a mistake. I mean, I don't know what that is, but that's way bigger than a mistake. Right? A mistake is something that you make on your income taxes. Right? A mistake is something you made on your math test back in school. Your mistake is like, I was driving down the street, and I took a wrong turn, and it took me a little longer to get to your house than I thought, and now I'm late. I'm sorry. It was a mistake. But listen, man, buddy, what you did, that is not a mistake. I don't know what it is, but it's definitely not a mistake. But this is what we do. This is what we all do. We, we've replaced this thought that we, we, we sin with a mistake. But come on, isn't our problem bigger than just making a mistake occasionally? Isn't it true that some of the mistakes that you make, you've actually made on purpose? Isn't it true that some of the mistakes that you've made, you've, you've put thought into preparing for ahead of time? What is that? Isn't it true that, that you've done some things to help facilitate your mistake? Maybe you got in the car and you drove across town to facilitate a mistake. Maybe you got a plane ticket. You bought a plane ticket to facilitate a mistake. Maybe you joined a gym so that you could get into better shape because you were hoping to make a mistake down the road. What is that? Can that be a mistake or is it something deeper? Isn't it true that some of the mistakes that we make, we make over and over and over again? We make the same thing. Is it possible to make a mistake a hundred times, making the exact same mistake? Is that still a mistake at that point? It seems like there's something bigger going on. Isn't it true that some of the things that you like to think of as a mistake are things that you have been incapable of fixing? Maybe, it's, maybe there's more than a mistake happening. Maybe we need a better word for it. Maybe this is where the word sin is more appropriate. Maybe instead of a 
mistake problem, we have a sin problem. Maybe you would admit this because you felt the pain of your sin like this woman had. This is what sin does. Sin, where there was life, leaves only death. Sin kills things. It kills your relationships. It kills your relationship with God. It kills your relationship with yourself. Sometimes it kills relationships with other people. It kills your self-respect. It kills your joy. It kills your love. And again, it leaves in its place only death. That's why the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans writes that simply the wages of sin is death. That's the outcome. That's the consequence, death. We know what Paul was talking about because we've all felt that. We've all, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all felt the death that he was talking about. There is some good news, though. The good news is that Jesus taught a lot on sin. Not just that he taught on sin, but the good news is that whenever Jesus talked about sin, he always talked about it in relation to reconciliation, not in relation to condemnation. What we find as we read through the Gospels is that Jesus' purpose in talking about sin was always reconciliation, not condemnation. He never talked about sin to condemn anyone or to shame anyone. The reason that he talked about it was because he understood that for someone to experience forgiveness and freedom from their sin, they first have to acknowledge their sin. If you don't think it's there, you're never going to deal with it. And so Jesus always challenged his listeners to do the raw, painful work of examining what's going on in my own heart. And he invited people to do that internal examination so that they could be healed. That's exactly what this woman experienced that day. And that's what we're invited to experience today as well. Forgiveness from our sin, life where there was death. For that to happen, our sin has to be atoned for. It has to be paid for because sin creates a debt. And there is a cost to that debt. And so we have the option. We can choose to self-atone, to say, God, I'm going to go at my own. I'm going to try to do this myself. I'm going to try to work hard enough. I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to try to atone for my own sin, which you never really can do. Or you can accept the free gift of grace offered to us through Jesus. That's the route this woman chose. And when it settled in on her, how amazing this gift of healing and forgiveness was, it changed everything for her. And for those of you who have already received that gift of salvation, you also know how good it is. But sometimes the further we get away from the moment when we received our salvation, the more that we take it for granted. And over time, we get accustomed to living with the peace that comes from having been forgiven. And the more that we get accustomed to it, the less it moves us. And so every once in a while, we have to put ourselves in the story like this story. And we have to be reminded of what an incredible gift our salvation is. We have to be reminded of what it felt like before we came to faith in Jesus. That's why reading the gospel accounts is so powerful because when we read, we come across stories like this. And when we pause long enough to place ourselves in the context of the stories, rather than just blitzing past them, it brings us back to that beginning. It reminds us what it's all about. 
And when you go back to the beginning of your salvation, you, you remember, that's why I live differently. That's why I serve. That's why I give. That's why I sing. Not because I'm supposed to, but because it comes from the overflow of gratitude in my life for what Jesus has done for me. And for those of you who have not yet had that salvation moment, but you know the pain of living under your sin, I want you to know you can have that moment today. That you can have that moment in this moment when you simply say to God, God, I confess my sin. You know what they are, but I want you to hear me say, I know that I am guilty of sin, that it's bigger than a mistake, and I recognize I can't fix it myself, so God, will you forgive me? And then you just accept that free gift of grace that he offers to every single one of us. It is a gift There's no special words you have to say. There's no special prayer you have to pray. There's no hoops you need to jump through. Just like Jesus did with this woman, he responds to what is in your heart. He responds to our trust in him, and he wants to say to you what he said to that woman that day, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we close today, I want to invite the band to come lead us in a song of worship. But as they come, I just want to encourage you. If you have been living in the pain of your sin, do not leave this place today without experiencing the peace that can only come from him. Let me say it again. God is not mad at you. He loves you. Because he loves you, Jesus came for you, and he died to pay that penalty, to pay that price for your sin. Look at the rest of Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God. No matter how much sin you've piled up, the gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus, our Lord, you are invited to receive that gift today, right here, right now, seated at the feet of Jesus. Thanks so much for listening today. For service times and details, head to weareheartland.us.